People love to cherry pick their favorite verses out of the Bible. They love to cherry pick the things that are positive, the things that have been meaningful to them, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. But there are things that are said in the Bible that are not pleasant, that I always tease, they don't make it onto t-shirts or bumper stickers. But there are things said that we must hear, that we need to know. In John 15, Jesus said, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. You know, as a church, we look forward and anticipate God doing his work in us and among us, that he's at work making and maturing disciples of Jesus. We're living proof of that work. And so many days we see the positive results from that. But Jesus prepares us in John 15. He says, listen, because you're my followers, you need to be ready to face persecution. Revelation chapter 11 is a picture of that time when the church will face persecution in general, but also when the church will face intense persecution towards the end. Now, when the heat is on and when when the temperature turns up with regards to persecution, we will be tempted to do what? To avoid it. It's just human nature. We'll be tempted to avoid it. You know, today we had the, the, the forecast that it was going to be in the 90s, right? And, you know, in New Jersey, the 90s is basically like intolerable, right? We can't handle it. So TJ, Pastor TJ was here early to check the air conditioners. And just in case TJ couldn't handle it, we had Andy brought in, just in case, <laughs> to make sure that the AC was up and running, you know, to make sure it was, it was, it was nice and cool. And we don't... Listen, we don't want to suffer. Nobody wants to suffer, right? And if it can be avoided, then great. But there's a part of following Jesus, there's a part of following Jesus that puts us at odds with a worldview that says God doesn't exist, that Jesus isn't Lord, that you don't need him. And because of that situation, there will be times of persecution that we cannot avoid, that we should not try to avoid. Have you ever tried to avoid it? Maybe you knew there was an awkward conversation that was going to be happening at work or was starting to happen at work, and you were like, oh, I just don't want to get, I just don't, nope, don't want it. Or maybe you just went along with the crowd at school or with your family, even though you knew what was going on was contrary to what honors the Lord, but you're, you know what, it just wasn't worth standing out, and you just didn't want to take the heat. We've all been there, and the truth is we'll all continue to be there. The persecution of the church is a theme consistently in Revelation, and in our passage this morning, we get a glimpse not just of the fact that the church will be persecuted, but also what we're supposed to be doing in the midst of persecution and where it ultimately ends up. And that gives us great hope this morning. So again, you have your Bibles there. We're we're getting back to Revelation chapter 11, verse 1, and uh, I want to thank Pastor Josh for covering chapter 10 last week. And uh, the, the big angel and the little scroll, right? So uh, I want to thank Josh for doing a good job with that. Really, we're in a continuation of that part of the vision. But let's pick it up in verse 1 and see what happens next here. Again, John's been summoned to heaven. He's given a vision to equip the church to walk by faith. In verse 1 of chapter 11, we read this. Then I was given a measuring reed like a rod with these words. Go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count those who worship there. But exclude the courtyard outside the temple. Don't measure it because it is given to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Okay, let's 
just pause here at verses 1 and 2. Okay, so here John's, again, been taken in a, in a vision spiritually into heaven. He's seen things. He's heard things. And as we saw last week in chapter 10 and now in chapter 11, he's actually called to participate a little bit in what's going on in this heavenly scene. And so here he's given a measuring reed, like a, a measuring stick, and the instruction given is to go and measure the temple of God and the altar and then to count the worshipers, okay? Now look, this measuring, that imagery of measuring the temple or measuring a city or even, you know, drawing a plumb line and measuring the straightness of something, that's commonly used in the Old Testament. And it's used particularly as a metaphor for God's uh, righteous judgment and protection of what is right. So the idea is that the Lord's going to me- that, that John's going to measure the temple to show what is good and right about it. Now this is not the literal temple. This temple is a, a symbol, and it represents the people of God. It represents believers. Okay, but then also he, so he's supposed to measure the temple and count the worshipers. Right. So this is good. The temple is good. The altar is good. The worshipers are good. But then he says, don't bother measuring the court of the Gentiles because for a time, for 42 months, that part is going to be overrun and trampled by the nations. Now that is a reference to something in the book of Daniel that actually happened back in the third century BC where the temple was overrun. It was overrun by pagans and the literal temple in Israel that happened to that in the third century when Antiochus IV was the Maccabean ruler, uh, excuse me, the um, Seleucid ruler. But then you also have it happening again in 70 AD with the Romans. In AD 70, the Romans trampled the temple and, and kind of you know, overran it. So in Daniel, and here picked up in Revelation, the trampling of the temple is a picture of persecution, of God's people being, being under the authority of an oppressor and basically of facing negative circumstances, Right? And so in the, measurement, in the measurement of the temple, he says, here's, here's the temple. The temple's good. The worshipers are good. And they are protected under God's grace. But there will be a time that they must suffer. And the time limit is given there is 42 months. There's, there's a limited time that they'll have to suffer. The three and a half years is a symbolic uh, picture of time, again, taken from Daniel. And the idea is that this time of suffering is limited. Now, this introduces another part of the vision that we're going to get to in a minute, but the the theme, the topic that's introduced here is persecution. It's persecution and protection. And the first thing you need to know this morning as we look at these verses is that persecution is part of the plan. Persecution is part of the plan. When believers face difficult circumstances because of their faith, when we are treated differently because of our faith, when, uh, when we uh, lose benefit or blessing because of our faith, when we suffer emotionally, uh, financially, or when we suffer even physically for our faith, that is not outside of the plan of God. It is within the plan of God. It's right in line with the plan of God. And so the measurement says, listen, here are the worshipers. They are good. This is a good thing, the church. But for a time, they will face difficulty and persecution. Persecution is part of the plan. Now, why the measuring? Well, the measuring says you just have to remember that ultimately it's not as if God is not on his throne. I would say it to you this way, that the church is never at the mercy of the world, even when it seems like it or feels like it. You know, sometimes you get a report about the church suffering intensely in other places in the world physically with Christians being imprisoned or Christians being executed. And although we're not facing that in our culture, right, we see it happening in other places and we think, wow, what's going on there? Is the world winning? And the answer is no, the world is not winning. Persecution is part of the plan and the church is never at the mercy of the world. 
And the same is true for us as we experience different levels of persecution. As we'll see this morning in several ways, there's a collective application of what's being taught in this vision that benefits the seven churches and benefits us, and there's a, a personal you know, part of the application. Collectively, we can see this, that the church will face that level of persecution. It's going to be disdained, mocked. It may even be oppressed. And you're saying, well, Pastor Ryan, how is that happening in our culture? Well, we see it in a few ways. First of all, we see it in the the way the media handles churches, by and large, uh, or churches that preach the gospel, I should say. Um, Media depiction of churches is not favorable. And, you know, we watch our fair share of uh, British dramas on PBS. Can I get an amen on that? Uh, These shows are being made, they're, they're being made, you know, their current shows, but they're depicting things historically. But man, I wince every time there's a pastor in those shows, right? Not just because they're unusually short, but because like, it's just, it, the, more often than not, the, the pastor is not a positive image. Worse than the pastor are serious religious people, Christians usually. So usually in these shows, Christians are portrayed, the serious Christian is portrayed as a bigot, they're portrayed as racist. They're portrayed as part of the problem, not part of the solution. And usually in the show, the, the hero or heroine has to kind of do better than the Christian does. And almost always the church is a joke in these shows. And uh, it's not just true with the period pieces. It's true in, in, in modern pieces as well. What's happening there, though? Our culture is saying through its media, the church is a joke. That's collective persecution of the church. It's not necessarily super intense, but it's, the, it's our culture saying the church is a joke. Serious Christians are a joke. They're part of the problem. They're not a part of the solution. Now, of course, in other places, we face physical persecution, where Christians actually face physical persecution. And I would have said, like two years ago, I would have said to you, this is happening in China, and, and this is happening in, uh, you know, d- difficult situations uh, like in Sudan, and, you know, uh, but, but it, you know, it's not happening in the Western world, right? But, I mean, it's just interesting to note that in the midst of all the COVID drama, and we worked hard to try to respond to the different circumstances with wisdom and carefulness, there were churches, especially churches in Canada, who chose to continue to meet and to worship, and I think they were right in that decision, and uh, churches where pastors were imprisoned because they, they met for worship. Situations where church buildings were locked up and the police came and locked down the building and refused to allow Christians access to worship in the building. And this is in a Western country, right, that's, that, that has uh, the same cultural heritage that we have. And so, you know, it's just kind of interesting because we're singing, you know, sitting here today and I'm saying, well, corporately, we may face that kind of persecution in the future. We don't know. That's why we need revelation to prepare us to be ready to follow Christ when the heat is turned up. Because when the heat gets turned up, we'll be tempted to want to just leave and crank up that AC. We might doubt, is God at work and protecting the church? But He is protecting the church even if He allows it to be persecuted, right? That's what's going on. Now, personally, right? How do we face this? Well, you're going to face a variety of circumstances of persecution where people will treat you differently because you're a believer. And that can happen in your family. That can happen in the workplace. Uh, I, I know we've talked about believers, even in our own congregation in ages past, who have lost promotions and even lost jobs because their Christian faith put them at odds with their culture of the workplace or, the, or their boss. And that's difficult. And obviously, Christians are called to work hard and to do a great job at their job with good attitudes. But sometimes, because of the nature of the disagreement between what the Bible teaches and what the world says, 
um, that may result in, in difficulty. In school, it's more obvious because in school, Christians, if you're vocal, you're going to get laughed at. You're going to be labeled. You're going to be treated differently. University level, you're going to be treated as uh, not serious about academic pursuits. Now, all of this is not new information. We read Job. The book of Job argues very clearly that God is sovereign over evil and suffering. In Romans 5, God is sovereign over suffering in difficult circumstances. In James 1, God is sovereign over suffering and it's used for our good. In 1 Peter 1, God is sovereign over our suffering and difficult circumstances, especially persecution. Listen, brothers and sisters, you just got to know the, the church is never at the mercy of the world. Always, always God is on his throne. And if he ordains for us to suffer for a time, to be persecuted... It's part of the plan. And so the the question is, will we trust him? Sometimes we're like children struggling to understand the benefit of our parents' discipline. We might wonder, God, why do you allow it? When God's word is not necessarily, here's the reason why, all the reasons why. His answer is, you just need to trust me and know that my measuring stick is clear and that, that what is good and right ultimately will win out. There's more to the story. So when we suffer persecution, we can't allow bitterness to to creep into our hearts. That's too short-sighted. We should never despair because despair, this is great, despair is theologically inaccurate. (laughs) It's not true. And we'll see why here before we get to the end of our passage. So what do we do when the heat is turned up? When when we as, as Christians face varying levels of persecution, what should you and I do? You know what we're called to do? We're called to testify to the Word of God. Watch verse 3. The vision continues, takes a turn here. He says, I will grant my two witnesses. This is the Lord speaking to John here in the vision. I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1260 days dressed in sackcloth. Okay, now hold on a second. The two witnesses. So the witness's job is to do just that, to bear witness, to testify. And what are they going to testify about? The word of God. They're going to they're proclaim the word of God. There are some who uh, would argue very, uh, I think, forcefully that this has to be two particular individuals. Some people think there's a connection with Elijah and Moses in the context. As you'll see, there is a connection to the Exodus and to Elijah's ministry. So it's Elijah and Moses. Some people think it's Enoch and, and uh, Elijah because they never actually died. Um, actually, what we'll see, I think it's most clear and it's obvious, is that this is a symbol. The two witnesses are a symbol for the church. And why are there two witnesses? Because in the law, you had to have two witnesses. In Deuteronomy, two witnesses had to confirm uh, an accusation of murder in order to result in the death penalty. Uh, you know, two witnesses had to confirm the nature of uh, the act of sin so that it could be account- atoned for in the temple. So there are two witnesses to confirm what? That evil is wrong and wicked, and they're going to pronounce God's judgment, but they're also going to pronounce the gospel. The two witnesses here are the church. 1,260 days, you just got to know that's a different way of calculating three and a half years. And so in some ancient texts, 30-day uh, months were like the average. So they just would do three and a half years, 30-day months is 1,260 days. Just take my word for it. Don't get your calculators out, all right? So, but it's the same period of time, a temporary time of, of suffering and witness. That's what we're talking about, right? And they're dressed in sackcloth. Why? They're mourning because of the state of the world. They're mourning because of the world being in its rebellion against God. Now watch, keep going to verse 4 as we continue to see the two witnesses at work. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. This is another reason we know the two witnesses are the church. Because in Revelation 1 verse 20, the lampstands are, they represent churches. So that's made abundantly clear there. 
And the olive trees, that's a reference from Zechariah chapter 4. You're getting your Old Testament bang for your buck today. Uh, Zechariah chapter 4, where what? The, the two olive trees uh, are symbolic of the Spirit's work equipping the church to be successful. And so here are these two witnesses who speak the Word of God. And as they do so, the Spirit of God blesses that proclamation and they are functioning in a way, as, as, in a sense, as priests before the Lord, but also as prophets in the world. Again, that is a picture of what the church, what we are called to do every day, to testify to the truth of God's word in the midst of a broken and rebellious world. He goes on in verse 5, God will protect the church for this time. If anyone wants to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and consume their enemies. An overly literal rendering of this means you have two prophets going around the earth, shooting flames out of their mouth, consuming their enemies. Okay? It's a symbol. What is it a symbol of? It's a symbol of the judgment that the Word of God brings to the world, where, where the Word of God points out, as the measuring rod does, what is right and what is wrong. And when God speaks, His Word is final. And so here, the church, as they bring the Word of God, they, they announce judgment against those who have rejected God. If anyone wants, verse 5, we're still in verse 5, if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. So in the vision, there's protection for the church, at least for a time. And then in verse 6, these signs, watch this, they have the authority to close up the sky so that it does not rain during the days of their prophecy. They also have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague whenever they want. Well, these signs link the ministry of the church here in Revelation 11 to two different times of ministry that links them to the ministry of Moses and Elijah. Again, I told you, Old Testament. Here we go. So in, uh, in Moses' day, the plagues were what? They were a sign of judgment against the false gods of Egypt. Right? That's what they were. And in Elijah's day, there was a time of drought as the prophet Elijah ministered the word of God in the midst of a pagan and rebellious time in Israel's history. And so those signs of judgment, they simply said that the stance of the world, or even the stance of those who claim to be in God's family, but that stance of pursuing evil, pursuing idolatry, rejecting the Lord, that is not going to work. That is not okay. So the church is a, is a shining light in the midst of a dark world, just like my, Moses and Elijah. That's what's going on there in verse 6. Listen, persecution is part of the plan. And while the church is never at the mercy of the world, the church is called to speak. The church is called to testify, to bear witness. Brothers and sisters, can I encourage you this morning that we are all called to this together? That we are all called to speak in ways that are distinctly Christian. And don't miss it. When the church speaks the word of God, when Christians speak the word of God, the spirit of God is at work in the world. Just like in Zechariah 4, that's the picture, right? The, the, the lampstand, the olive trees, what, under the influence of the spirit, speaking the word of God that's consistent with his revealed word that we have in the Bible. And when that's happening, when we're speaking in distinctly Christian ways, God's message, God's spirit is at work. Now, again, we see it corporately and personally. Corporately, obviously, in the church we do this right now through the proclamation of the word on a Sunday morning. We do it in Sunday school classes, both for young and old, as we teach through the Bible and as we focus on what has God revealed to us in his word. 
This happens through personal conversations in the context of the church where discipleship is happening and we're reading and growing in our knowledge of God through His Word. And so as we do that, we bear witness to the truth. So this is a public worship service. Anyone can come in and attend, and as they come in, what will happen? They will hear things that might make them uncomfortable. They will, they will hear the explanation of God's Word. There's a corporate component here. You know, the elders of the church are called to protect the teaching of the church, to refute false doctrine, false gospel, and to focus on what God has revealed to us in His Word. It's the elders' responsibility to do that and to pass that on uh, to others uh, to continue that work throughout the ages. So corporately, that's what we're called to. By the way, that's why you should care what's being taught in the church, number one. And number two, you should participate in being taught in the church. That when we do Wednesday night Bible study, we're not just doing it for fun. That we, we need to hear from God's Word. We need to have that proclamation made clear. When we do care groups, we're not just doing it as a mindless exercise. We're doing it because we need fellowship around the Word to discuss it together, to pray through it together, to apply it to our lives together. We need to be doing this work, right? That's the corporate side of it. But then we also see it personally. And that's maybe where your mind might go when we talk about testifying. But I want to challenge you this morning to think beyond the the technical sharing of the gospel, right? Sometimes we think about, I'm going to evangelize this person, right? Uh, Woe to the person who sits next to me on a plane, right? They're they're toast. It's good. They're going down. I mean, it's like they're not getting out of that plane without, you know, hearing. I mean, that's, you know, we think about those kinds of moments where it's like, okay, they're going to, they're going to, I'm going to share the gospel with this person. But I want you to think about our testimony in terms of a transformed life and attitude, Sometimes your Christianity will be seen more clearly in how you speak about other people and things than, than in just your presentation of the gospel, right? So they're talking at work about whatever's going on, and you have an opportunity to speak about that from a Christian perspective, from a Christ-centered perspective. When you do that, God gets glory. You might take heat, but God gets glory. When, when at school, they're all talking about how they watched that show. Did you see that show? And you're like, well, no, I didn't watch that show because it's got stuff in it that I shouldn't be watching. That's not honoring to the Lord. And they look at you like you have three heads and seven horns, right? Sticking out of your head. What's happening? Well, you're distinctly testifying to what the Christian life is about. And when you're going through that, that cancer trial, when you're going through that difficult circumstance, that loss in the family, and somebody says to you, the friend, the neighbor, the person at school, and they say, how are you even standing today because of that trial? And you say, I just want to tell you, it's because Jesus died for my sins and he rose from the dead, and I have confident hope in Christ, and that's how I can endure this trial, and I don't know how it's all going to work out, and I'm not guaranteed an easy life, but I can tell you this, that God is faithful and I'm trusting him today. God gets the glory. You might have the heat turned up in that relationship. It might get more difficult for you in that workplace or school, but God gets the glory. Brothers and sisters, that's not optional. That's not advanced Christianity. This is basic Christian living in a broken world. God calls the church to speak. So just, I'm going to ask the question directly. How about you? Could people tell you're a follower of Jesus by how you talk and the way you live? Are you functioning as one of the two witnesses? Are you spewing fire out of your mouth? (laughs) All right, well, you know, we got to understand the, the image, right? Is your, life, is your life a shining light that says God is, is there and he is true? And what's going on here, right? The rebellion against God, this is not right. I wonder if maybe we're blending in too much with how we speak. We're blending in too much with the culture and how we live. 
our main uh, obstacle here is, we usually call it fear of man, right? That's a biblical phrase, like the fear of man. Fearing what people think of us prevents us from speaking boldly for Christ. Fearing what people think of us prevents us from speaking boldly for Christ. So we live in an increasingly atheistic and certainly pluralistic culture. So to say that there is only one God, and He is the God of the Bible, you're going to, again, you might, people are going to think differently about you. But we're called to testify to God's existence in an atheistic culture. We're called to testify to God's righteousness and His judgment in a, in a culture that values tolerance and fundamental acceptance and approval of everyone and every decision they make. And, and just in case you've, you haven't been around the last 10 years, right, that's where we are, right, culturally, where it's not enough to say you're free to make a decision and you'll live with the consequences of that decision. The pressure coming on, on the church is you must affirm that what other people decide to do with regards to sin is okay and good, that it's, that it's right for them to choose that. And you have to champion it. You have to cheerlead it. You have to approve it and condone it. And that's where we're trying to say, listen, as a church, we're going to hold this line where we will say clearly as we can that God loves you and that God cares for all sinners, right? And that Jesus is the proof of that. But we will never say sin is okay or sin is right or we will never applaud it or champion it. Will we testify about God's gracious salvation being available in Christ? I just want to challenge you. You don't have to be an expert in methods of evangelism. You, you don't have to have all the scriptures memorized. But Christians, regular Christians, living the course of their lives in their workplaces, in their families, in their neighborhoods, their schools, are the primary means of the sharing of the gospel with the world. God's going to use you in that context more than he's going to use me. He's put you there, and he hasn't put one of our elders there. He's put you in that circumstance to tell people, you know what? There actually is hope for forgiveness, and there's hope for restoration, and there's ultimate hope for resurrection. Where? It's in Jesus. People still need to hear that fundamental message, and God has sent us to speak it. So what happens when we speak God's word in hostile territory? We will take heat. Watch verse 7. The vision goes on. He says, when they finish their testimony, the two witnesses, the church, right? When they finish giving their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war on them, conquer them, and kill them. Not the ending you were hoping for, right? Well, it's not technically the end yet. Just hold on. But what happens? Well, the, the church finishing their testimony, this is now advancing the cause, and now we're looking ahead towards the very end, right before the return of Christ, where things are going to get really, really hot. And what's going to happen is the beast, the beast is probably the same beast that we're going to meet later in chapter 13, probably the Antichrist, that the ultimate culmination of that attitude of rebellion against God. So what is the beast going to do? It comes out of the abyss. We know the abyss. We've already met the abyss here in Revelation. It's uh, basically where those demon locusts came from in, in chapter 7. But So this coming out of hell is the idea. The beast is going to come out of hell. And what's the beast going to do? Make war on the church, which that's happening today to a point, but it's going to get worse. He's going to be temporarily given victory. He's going to conquer the church, and he's going to kill the witnesses. Now, I just need to remind you, don't forget... There were some in the seven churches in Revelation who had died, a martyr's death already. 
So this was not like a hypothetical one day this might happen. It had happened to some of the churches that were reading this for the first time. And they could think of the names of people that they knew who died because they were Christians, right? And so they, they had seen one aspect of the beast's victory over the church and someone being killed for their faith. And what is the summons here? The summons is to continue in faithful service in spite of that persecution. In fact, the world's going to love this death of Christians. Verse 8, their dead bodies will lie in the main street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. It's talking about Jerusalem, but it's, it's Jerusalem categorized like Sodom and Egypt. Sodom with the emphasis on homosexuality. Why? Because that's the pinnacle of rebellion against God's authority as the creator, or the absolute rejection of God's created order. And God's holy city, Jerusalem, is Sodom now. And it's also Egypt. Why Egypt? Because Egypt is that, that hotbed of idolatry from the days of, uh, of Israel's time in, in, ex, or in uh, slavery there. And so the idolatry and the rejection of God's authority, well, that's what Jerusalem will be characterized by. And so the, the point is, they're going to die and they're going to leave the, the bodies out. Now, what does this represent? It represents the fact that culture and rebellion against God will be happy to see the church suffer and will be ultimately happy to see Christians die. Again, probably most intensely there at the time of the end. In verse 9, And some of the peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will view their bodies for three and a half days and not permit their bodies to be put in a tomb. Just let them rot. Just like they did with John Owen's friends back in England in the 1600s. Just put the heads on pikes around the city. Make sure everybody can see what happens to people that are going to peddle this idea that Jesus is the Savior of the world. They're going to say that God's word is final. They're going to say that we should repent of our ways. Let's show what happens to those people. Leave the bodies out. Verse 10, give gifts. Those who live on the earth will gloat over them and celebrate and send gifts to one another because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. They're going to create a new gift-giving holiday to displace Christmas. And the new gift-giving holiday is celebrating the death of Christians and the suffering of the church. Why would you give me this present? Well, because the church is suffering. They lost another battle. So here, here's a present for that, right? It's a sobering image of the fact that the church does not fit in a culture that stands against the Lord. Persecution is part of the plan. Church is called to speak. We also know the church will suffer. The church will suffer. Our culture is trending more this way than it has been in recent uh, history. So we're, we're going to experience more of this, not less. Okay? We're not to the end yet, we don't think. The, the, the heat isn't up you know, extremely bad on us at the moment, but we're headed that way. So you just might ask the question here, what do I expect as a follower of Jesus? Right? Do we expect the church to find favor in the eyes of the world? to be treated as uh, good and glorious by Hollywood, to be continually protected by the laws that are written in Washington, D.C., to have honor in our culture, we should not expect that. And to the degree that we have it, we should be grateful, right? And be thankful to the Lord for that measure of protection that we have in the moment. But it will not last, ultimately. We should expect it. The servant is not greater than his master. And you know what? More and more, we're, we're realizing this. The church at ease is almost always a church that has compromised. When, when a church is, is lauded in our culture, celebrated for being a good thing, 
Even today, I mean, when a church is, is put up on a pedestal and said, this is how things should function, right? When that happens, almost always that church is a church that has compromised the gospel. And they've ceased testifying. They've just become, what, repeating the message of the culture. So we can ask the question corporately and personally. Corporately, will we be faithful as a church even when the heat is turned up? We have to ask that question as leaders of the church, as the elders lead the church. But we collectively, as a church body, we need to ask the question, are we ready to keep going as followers of Jesus even though the heat could get turned up? We also have to ask the question, am I personally ready to do that? Will I be faithful to follow Jesus unto death? Which again, statistically, is probably not super likely you're going to face that difficulty. But you need to ask that question because if you're not ready to follow Jesus to death, then are you ready to follow him into extreme difficulty? Are you ready to follow him into moderate difficulty? Are you ready to follow him in any difficulty at all? There's no room in the church for fair-weather Christians. You know that term, fair-weather Christians, right? Uh, we talk about fair-weather fans. It's Dallas Cowboy fans, but fair-weather fair fans, you know. Um, where's Tom? That was for you, Tom. But uh, a fair-weather Christian is someone that says, yes, I'm a Christian, and they're happy to profess that as long as it's easy. As long as times are good, the market's up, and the kids are obedient, Right? Then we'll follow Jesus. But Revelation asks the question, are you ready to follow Jesus? Not when it's moderately difficult or seriously difficult or extremely difficult. Are you ready to follow Jesus unto the bitter end? I was uh, reminded of Adoniram Judson's ministry. Adoniram Judson was the first Baptist missionary to India and Burma uh, he had a, a remarkable ministry, uh, suffered tremendously for the Lord, lost two wives, seven of 13 kids, took six years before there was one convert, took 20, 19, 20 years before there was any ever serious traction in the ministry, okay? So just think about that, those circumstances, right? Um, didn't have one trip home for furlough for 33 years, Okay? He was willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. John Piper, about, writing about Adoniram Judson, said this. He said, The question is not whether or not we will die, but whether we will die in a way that bears much fruit. The, the witnesses die in this vision, but they die in a way that bears fruit. Why? Because they're speaking clearly the word of God. Their lives are evidence of the truthfulness of the Word of God, and their very lives and words are a condemnation of all who would stand in rebellion against God. In this case, it's not so much fear of man that prevents us from obedience, but it's fear of death. And, you know, we, again, we've often talked about how in our culture we try to, uh, we don't want to see death, so we've got it outsourced, right, to other buildings. We don't want death in our homes often. We don't want to think about death. We want to live as long as we possibly can. But you realize that fear of death may prevent us from following Jesus to the hardest places. Did you realize, perhaps, that for you to live a God-glorifying life may not be for you to live a long life? That, that God's purpose for your life may be that you would follow Him radically and that you may die younger because of it. And guess what? 
that's okay. Satan is whispering, God wants you to live a long, comfortable life full of material prosperity right now. That worldview is in conflict with what we find in the scriptures regarding Christians. The servant is not greater than his master. Jesus said, they persecuted me, they will persecute you. But we can also look to Jesus as a model, not of merely of our suffering, but also of ultimate victory, because this is not the end of the vision. Watch verse 11. But after three and a half days, three and a half years of trampling the temple, three and a half years of the, the witness of the church protected, but then ultimately suffering, but they're, now they're dead, their bodies are staying out in the, in the city. But after three and a half days, what happens in the vision? The breath of life from God entered them. They stood on their feet. We have a word for that. Resurrection. Here the church is revived, resurrected. Great fear fell on all those who saw them. I think this is actually looking forward to the ultimate resurrection of the church at the return of Christ. And so everyone who witnesses this, great fear falls on them. Of course it does. Why? Because it turns out they were wrong, right? There's a public vindication of the church here. Verse 12, then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. This is, I think this is likely the clearest reference to the rapture in the book of Revelation. The rapture is a term for the gathering of the church upon the return of Christ. It's, it's referred to in Matthew 24. Jesus talks about it there. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4. I've got those scriptures for you. But here's the deal. One of the biggest misunderstandings about the rapture or the gathering of the church upon Jesus' return is that it will be secret. It will not be secret. It will be public and visible. And that's clear in all three of those passages, the other passages when you read them. It's a clear, it's, a, it's going to be a, a public event. What's, what's interesting about the gathering is that it's unexpected from the perspective of the world, okay? So it's unexpected from the perspective of the world, but what will happen? A voice calls from heaven, come up here. Why the public voice and the vision? To say, I just want the whole world to know that these who died in my service, they now have risen to life and they belong to me and now they are welcomed into my presence. It's a public vindication of the church, even those, especially those who gave their lives as martyrs. And notice in verse 12, while their enemies watched them. So those opposed to the mission of God will stand there and they will, have, they will have incontrovertible evidence right before their eyes. And I would love to tell you that that would cause them to repent. Most will not. They will see the vindication of the church and they will still reject the Lord. We see that in verse 13. At, the moment, at that moment, a violent earthquake took place. A tenth of the city fell and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. So we have two things going on here. There's judgment in the earthquake, and many died, but really not that many. The idea may be that, that wow, God was gracious even in this judgment. And the survivors ter- were terrified, and they gave glory to the God of heaven. That may be that they became believers. It's not a slam dunk, but it's, it's, I think it's the most likely reading. That they gave glory to God of heaven, and they, they worshiped as a result. Not most, but some. And then in in verse 14, John clarifies, the second woe has passed. Take note, the third woe is coming soon. And we're continuing on in this outpouring of God's judgment against the world. Well, persecution is part of the plan. Not only is the church never at the mercy of the world, the church is called to speak, the church will suffer. But finally this morning, the church will be victorious. 
the church will be victorious. We can look to Jesus and his death and resurrection as a model for what will literally happen to us. That as we die under any circumstance, we will rise. But especially with a focus on the fact that the church may die giving testimony to the gospel. And that hope that comes from the death and resurrection of Jesus is the same hope that we have as we face death. So, it's not sad or tragic for us to give up money, or fame, career, or reputation for Jesus. It's not a loss for us to give up what the world worships, right? To honor Christ and to put Him first. You can, you can maybe say it this way. Persecution is only tragic temporarily. It's only tragic temporarily. And it may even result in evangelism. Again, think about Adoniram Judson. After 19 years, finally there was a more like attraction in the culture. In fact, it was really cool. He would go to, to places and they would say, are you the Jesus man? Like, we need to hear about Jesus. Are you the Jesus man? Like, but it took him 19 years to get there, right? But God, and he had he'd been in prison. I mean, he had suffered so much. And you might ask the question, why, Lord, what are you doing? Why, why are Christians suffering? Why are Christians being persecuted? But God's plan is still in, in place. And as the testimony of the word goes out, many will respond in faith. And so there he was going to, to tribes after 18, 19 years, and they were saying, are you the Jesus man? We're ready to hear from you. Our suffering is not without purpose. Our main enemy at this point is the love of comfort. Love of comfort prevents us from following Jesus when it costs something. And frankly, that's just our battle, isn't it? I mean, we live in America. And so just love of comfort is a huge part of our culture. And as Christians living in that kind of a culture, we have to check our own heart. And say, okay, wait a minute. Are there signs that I am loving comfort? And if I am, what do I need to do to get to the place where I'm ready to follow Jesus when it costs something? And you think about Adoniram Judson going to Burma and, and consciously saying, I know that it may very well cost me my life. It could cost my wife her life. It could cost and did cost half of his children their lives. But he said, you know, I'm willing to count that cost. I'm willing to acknowledge that, that that's a way I can glorify God. And although it is hard, I must do it. There's that kind of thinking. And in American Christianity, often the biggest problem that we're facing is what are we going to watch on Netflix tonight? Like we're not wrestling enough with, am I, am I living a life that is devoted to the glory of God so much so that I'm willing to pay a cost? The cost may be, I choose not to watch that. The cost may be, I choose to work in a particular way. The cost may be, I have this conversation and stand for God's truth in a, in a quasi-public setting, right? But we live in a culture that loves comfort, and so we hesitate. We can learn from the faithful martyrs of ages past how to be like these two witnesses. I want to tell you about two other witnesses. My two friends, Nicholas Ridley and Thomas Latimer. They lived in England in the 1500s during the reign of Mary Tudor I, also known as Bloody Mary. These two guys were pastors. Uh, it was an unfortunate time to be a pastor in England of the true church. And 
They were, of course, arrested because they opposed Roman Catholic teaching, specifically the teachings about papal authority and transubstantiation, amongst other things. And so they were sentenced to die. It was a different time, but nonetheless, they were sentenced to die. They were sentenced actually to be burned at the stake. They were publicly humiliated for their faith. They were dressed up in Roman Catholic uh, robes, priestly robes. They were forced to take uh, Roman Catholic communion, which they opposed, and they were forced to do all that publicly, which is exactly what they were kind of standing against, and so it was done publicly to humiliate them. The next day, this would be October 16, 1555, in Smithfield, uh, just outside of London, they were stripped to their underwear, strapped to the stakes, wooden stakes, where they had... Uh, wood paste around their feet, and they had a bag of gunpowder around their neck. And the theory was that it would be, uh, you know, somewhat merciful there at the end. So there these two guys are, these two witnesses, chained to the stake next to each other. This is a true story. And Latimer says to Ridley, Be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England I trust shall never be put out. Be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley. We need a little more of that. Latimer died quickly. Ridley, not so much. His fire didn't take very well. So his legs burned, but not the rest of his body. They had to add wood to get the fire to go up, and he suffered, humiliated. And he died, a painful, agonizing death. But he didn't lose, because persecution is part of the plan. And in his life, in his words, and in his death, he testified to the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, you will likely not face this end. But you need to ask the question, will you testify today? Would you pray with me, and we'll ask God to help us. Lord, we confess that we... uh, in many, in, many, in many ways, we are just as lovers of comfort as the world around us. And we struggle, Lord, with fear of man. We struggle with fear of death. We see this vision, this vision of the two witnesses faithfully bearing testimony of your truthfulness and suffering for it, Lord. And it scares us, frankly, Lord. We, we don't want to undergo such, such physical suffering and even death. But Lord, we understand that you call us to more, that you call us to a radical, uncompromising faith that will lead us to costly obedience. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to be ready to have the awkward conversation, to take the stand in the class, to say no to friends when they're calling us to participate in sinful activities. Lord, we ask that you would give us the courage to stand and speak against the the beliefs of our culture, especially as they move further and further away from your truth. And Lord, may we do so with love and, and compassion, but Lord, may we do so with conviction. And Lord, we, we pray that we would follow the example of Christians in ages past who have followed you to the utmost. Lord, help us especially as we need to repent of laziness and love of comfort. Lord, may we embrace this truth that we are not greater than our master. And Lord Jesus, yes, you were persecuted and therefore we will be persecuted also. And help us to see that this is not to lose, but rather it is to win. 
and that we will be ultimately victorious because of the glorious truth of the resurrection. Help us in the meantime, Lord, to honor you with the decisions we make even today. We ask in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.